on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, one of the original Inside the Huddle guests returns, and this time we have proof. It's Jake Heggie. He's real. Jake Heggie. Oliver, please make sure you are recording. (laughs) Then in Chalk Talk, it's week two of March Madness 2022, when Ashley and I fill out our portions of the bracket for the winningest winningest composer of the past 400 years. That's hard to say. Minus Mozart, Verdi, and Puccini, of course. Plus, in the two-minute drill, don't ever ever heckle one of our Inside the Huddle guests. Hey, I mean it. If you're watching on the Dallas Opera Network, please make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show on Stitcher or Spotify. You can just click follow. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. Send a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And without further ado, Oliver, were you intimidated? I feel bad for your kids, your, your future <laughs> children. This is like a, we're gonna use this uh, video for DCFS. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ashley Hargrave, hello in San Diego, right? Yes, hello from my hotel room in sunny Ooh, wow. San Diego. And in the uh, Arkansas sports update that nobody cares about, nobody asks for, the Razorbacks are in the Sweet Sixteen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And they're playing Gonzaga. Even business travel cannot prevent the prop work. I love it. No, <laughs> that, uh, I had much... to have this for. Th- I had to have it for Thursday's game. So I mean, they're playing Gonzaga. So like, we got to keep the hope alive now. My my bracket is literally in shambles. It is in pieces all over the floor. I, li- literally, this is the first time I've been in an, in an office situation where they had a bracket, and uh, I was like, okay, I'm ready. I've been on Opera Box Score for what four years now. I I can do this, and like instantly, half of my team's gone. I don't know what's going on. Please help me. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So earlier today, Matt and I were able to snag Jake Heggie for just a quick 30 minutes um, in Chicago. Uh, his show um, To Remain is about to be produced by Chicago Fringe Opera. And since one of our regular panelists has a relationship with Chicago Fringe Opera, he had to recuse himself from today's episode. Hopefully, every week we'll have a guest that uh, is having a relationship with Chicago Fringe Opera. So we never have to see that le- that leprechaun again. But um, we have this wonderful interview with Jake Heggie, who is here to talk about a difficult opera. It's based on survivors' stories from the Holocaust. And uh, he's going to tell us all about it. It's some heavy stuff, but uh, in the traditional Jake Heggie way, he has found a way to add light and hope uh, through the use of his, you know, popular idioms and tonality and uh, giving some giving the audience something to really, you know, enjoy musically. It's not all thorny angular music, as is not uh, Jake Heggie's brand. And uh, we'll start off the interview with him uh, testifying that he indeed did appear on Opera Box Score years ago, though he doesn't remember it. I would love if you could just confirm for our audience that uh, you did, in fact, give an interview to a radio show called Opera Box Score. I don't know what year it was, but when Chicago Opera Theater was doing Moby Dick, what, 2018? Uh, 2019. Spring of 19. Okay. Oh, it was 19? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember ever calling into WNUR in Chicago and talking to a couple of chumps that didn't know how to use uh, (laughs) their microphones and their tech? (laughs) You know what? I only, I try to remember the good times. Okay. (laughs) So technically this is your second interview uh, for Opera Box Score, but the first that will be heard by an audience. (laughs) (laughs) We've referred to the other one as our lost episode many times. (laughs) So welcome back. It was the white whale episode. (laughs) It was. (laughs) We'll rebrand it. 
<laughs> so we just missed you uh, for the opportunity uh, to talk to you about uh, If I Were You, uh, which was the opera you wrote for the Merola program, which the Bean and School of Music Opera Theater just mounted uh, exactly a month ago today. That was it. So, um, and now you're, I don't know if you're coming to Chicago or if you are uh, giving your counsel over the internet uh, to this company called Chicago Fringe Opera um, for your um, piece called To Remain. And uh, luckily Matt has seen it. So he, he has a little bit more reference point. I've been listening to it all day long and I understand that the commercial recording uh, out of darkness isn't exactly what to remain is. Can you, first of all, can you tell us what the subject matter is? And then to tell us how it relates to the recording out of darkness. Right. Um, it, it had a long uh, gestation piece and quite public actually, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes you like to keep those things private, but um, uh, to remain started off as um, two separate one act operas that were commissioned by an amazing group out of Seattle called Music of Remembrance. And what this group does, it's about to celebrate its 25th season. And it was founded by a woman named Minna Miller, who's also the artistic director. And uh, Minna wanted to create a chamber group that would perform music that was lost to the, to the Holocaust. Um, composers that perished or were murdered, um, and their music then forgotten. And she gradually over the years started to expand that vision. And when I came along, she asked me to uh, write a song cycle about the persecution of gays in the Holocaust. And I didn't actually know anything about this subject and did a lot of research and told Minna, look, I really, I wanna do it. I think it's more of a theater piece, however. And so that evolved into a piece called for a look or a touch with an actor and a baritone and a chamber ensemble. And- A baritone or a barahunk? <laughs> or maybe we'll an aged, an aged barahunk, you know? So <laughs> if it's like thinking back, maybe you, you need like the Thomas Hampson version of barahunk. <laughs> <laughs> many, many, many baritones have done the role. Um, all of them barahunks, I will yeah, tell you. Yeah. Um, oh, but- <laughs> Anyway, and then it, it then a couple years later, we decided she brought another story to my attention. And uh, by the way, Out of Darkness, I mean, um, For a Look or a Touch was with librettist Gene Shear, who also wrote the libretto for Moby Dick, mm -hmm. and It's a Wonderful Life, and If I Were You, and our yeah. upcoming- He's your Hoffman style. Yes. Or your the, the Ponte, yeah. Yes, he is. Um, I've been lucky, I've had two. I had Terrence McNally, and now I have Gene Shear. Um, and then a, a couple of years later, Minna came to us with a piece called, uh, that became Another Sunrise, that was about the life of a woman named Kristina Zhivolska, another Holocaust survivor story. And that was just a one woman, one act opera. But Kristina, to survive in, in Auschwitz-Birkenau, made up lyrics to popular tunes of the day um, that people could sing in the camps and give them hope and connection to something you know, optimistic in the midst of such horror. And so as a subsequent piece, we created a song cycle called Farewell Auschwitz that had her lyrics translated by Jean Shear. And then I set them to some original tunes and then a couple of known tunes. And then we decided, well, we have these three pieces and um, we, we made a recording of them. And we thought, well, what are we gonna call this bunch of pieces, these two one-act operas and this song cycle. And so we came up with the title Out of Darkness, right? So that is what the recording was. But then we thought people started to want to perform this and it just became, it was a little unwieldy. You have a one-act opera and then a song cycle and then a one-act opera. And so we thought we have to make a cohesive one evening, full evening work of this. And so we went to work and we rewrote the first Piece, another another sunrise and wove in the songs that Christina wrote to survive in the camp and added some other characters and so created a new first act and then kept for a look or a touch basically the same for the second act and then we called this version to remain the number two as in two people Christina 
and Gad, and that's what the acts are called. And so it's this long genesis into this one act piece that I still have never seen <laughs> in its final version. It was done, uh, when we got to the final version, it was done in Atlanta, at Atlanta Opera. And I couldn't be there, unfortunately. The timing was bad. And so now it's going to be done by Chicago Fringe Opera and I'm unfortunately not able to be there again. Oh. So it's an opera of mine I have never seen. Anyway, <laughs> that's a long trajectory to tell you how we got to this piece. And it, it, it's a combination of very challenging and dark because of the subject matter and the location, but also very hopeful and redemptive because I like pieces that give you something hopeful to hang on to at the end. So um, there are two ghost stories, two dark nights of the soul about embracing your past and the ghosts of your past. Because if you don't embrace them and learn to uh, live honestly with them, they will haunt you for the rest of mm -hmm. your life. And I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about uh, how it was that you constructed that kind of sound world with, with a combination of your original compositions and some, some familiar tunes. Like what sort of musical influences were you trying to evoke in, yeah. in, in uh, recreating such a specific sound world? A specific time too, yeah. A specific time period, yeah. Well, that's actually a challenge that I love because I grew up in a household where my dad, my dad listened to big band music and great jazz singers. And my mom sort of listened to a combination of pop and country a little bit. And my sisters were into all the rock bands and I loved musicals, of course. and um, so all those influences are, are in my wheelhouse. And uh, so when it came time to do these songs that she was, um, she was writing and emulating and creating during the, the uh, 30s and 40s, I was able to emulate the Andrews sisters for one of the songs, a song called Miss Jutka. And um, I actually took a Chopin, um, uh, what is this? Nocturne Ballade <laughs> Etude. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> a waltz, a knock, okay. uh, the C sharp minor waltz. Gosh, my poor brain. Um, <laughs> and I emulated a Schubert song, and then I did another. I did an anthem, and a real combination of things that would be influences that people at that time would have known about, mm -hmm. and that would sound familiar to them. So, really, I think all of them are pretty original. Uh, they have influences that make it sound like it's been around. But uh, except for the Chopin, um, which I which I took um, uh, directly from it's public domain, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but even so in it was uh, fun and challenging, and and uh, to sort of figure it out because we don't know what the tunes were that she set. We just have her lyrics. Yeah. Um, but I also needed to make it fit into the sound world of the opera that I was creating. So, so this is the big challenge of opera. It's like you don't want to just be pastiche. You want it to be of a piece so that there's a line, a harmonic, melodic, um, rhythmic line that takes you from beginning to end and yet surprises you, you know, inevitable yet surprising. Um, it's really easy. I don't know why everyone can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but even in the uh, second act, the the God, God Gad, 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 or yeah, I remember hearing a song that felt very big band dance number. I think it's called Golden Years. Is that Golden Years? Yeah. 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 So I'm assuming Chicago Fringe Opera, that's going to be like a big dance number and all the male chorus is going to come out, like Chippendale style. <laughs> I don't know, in a Holocaust drama, if the Chippendale dancers will come out. But, but uh, okay, I'll leave that to you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I actually, I don't know what they're planning. I, and I'm, that's why I'm so upset the timing doesn't work for me to go. I was hoping just to be able to fly out just for the evening to be able to hear it. But unfortunately, I can't. But I'm so grateful them uh, for doing it. It's very brave to do it, you know, because it, it actually is a very complicated, demanding piece. And because the uh, orchestration is a chamber ensemble of six instruments, those are all very, very soloistic, demanding instrumental parts. So you have to have crackerjack, great players to do it, as well as the cast uh, to handle all the dramatic uh, ups and downs of the piece. Yeah, I feel like this work is very hard to market because, I mean, listen to how long it took for you even to explain like what it is. And, you know, the Holocaust is such a difficult topic in general. And of course, there's all these other topics within, you know, all these stories within the Holocaust. So how do you 
you know, address the gravity of it while not making people scared. Like, oh, this is going to be a depressing evening. You know? oh, and like, it's, it's the story of survivors. And we all know what it is to survive something. And we all know um, to a certain extent um, what, what is necessary to survive. But what these survivors went through in the Holocaust, you know, you, you don't really, sometimes survivors are cast as heroes and they don't really like that because they don't necessarily feel heroic. They were just surviving. And then sometimes you don't know what it is to survive until the gun is pointed at your head. And so the, to hear these people deciding and wrestling with the story they're going to tell of their life. Because um, a lot of times people who survive horrific events like this, they don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. They want to leave it in the past. And yet some people keep asking and they have to decide which version of what they went through they're going to share and live with for the rest of their life. And that's what this piece is about. It's about two survivors deciding, are they going to embrace or bury the past and how they find a way to deal with those ghosts. I think everyone loves ghost stories. There's a bit of a sci-fi feel to a ghost story. And mm -hmm. we all sort of love the magic realism of, of a ghost story. And what would happen if the ghosts of your past visited you and said, please just tell us the truth, embrace us, love us. Cause ghosts, you know, they just wanna be loved and remembered. You know, they don't, they don't necessarily, you know, we wanna forget they want to be remembered. Um, and so it's that struggle between the now and the past and the future. Um, but I find that fascinating. I love magic realism. I love stories of people who survive and how they did it. That's why I love, I love biographies and novels about survivors because they're so fascinating how people get through things. Um, and to imagine surviving something as horrific and heavy as that and to find a redemptive way to tell that through music and you know, poetic libretto, uh, like uh, Gene Shear's beautiful words and a range of musical influences that is really exciting and uh, engaging. Uh, it's a wonderful challenge, but I find that it actually, audiences go away uplifted from these, from the evening, because like in the second half with the story of Gadbeck and Manfred Levine, they go away thinking, I just watched a great love story unfold you forget that it's a gay love story. It's just a very human love story. And uh, I think that is, is, uh, is tremendous. And it can, so these stories can bring perspective to us. They can give us information about things we never knew about. I'm a gay man. I did not know about the persecution of gays in the Holocaust. I did not know about people surviving in Auschwitz by writing lyrics to songs and the songs going viral in the camp and that giving everyone hope and opportunity for something connected and beautiful. Um, I think that it's, it's such, it, it's incredibly rich. And with this, with the stories being, you know, they're, they're so fraught and they're so heavy and so complicated and with it in, with the perspective of that, that light at the end of the tunnel that you're, that you're talking about here, what is, is there any kind of uh, light or freshness that you hope the audience takes away that that they haven't that they may not have necessarily considered before about the subject matter. Any any I'm sorry. Any light of what or any any kind of what 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 is um, if if you had an audience member who could just kind of say like this was this was what I took away from that uh -huh. in your in your dreams of this piece what what is it that that they are saying to you? Um, okay. In the first half, Christina winds up rejecting and deciding, no, that's not the version of the story I want to tell. I'm going to see another sunrise and I'm going to live another day and I'll make a decision later. So she's going to be haunted by these ghosts. Gad, at the end of act two, literally embraces and remembers and holds on to that ghost from his past mm -hmm. and finds peace it's the first time the actor playing the role of Gad actually sings. And I think it's, it's a big message about embracing and, and, uh, and loving all the things that have happened to you, the good and the bad, so that you can live a fulfilled life and a complete life. Otherwise, you're sort of doomed to repeat behaviors and be trapped by the past. But if you embrace it, if you take it in, 
Maybe music can come back into your life. Maybe something can open in your heart that was, that was closed off. And I think that's one of the big messages of the piece is that as horrible as things are in the past some, for, for some people, I, I've been very lucky in my life. I've had some tragedy, but nothing like what these people went through. But when you can finally embrace and accept all of that as part of the journey, um, there can be a real liberation in your heart and an and openness that you, maybe you had never considered before. And I think that's a perspective people sometimes lose. Just to circle back to us uh, and the and the all stars of uh, opera box score, we've had Katira Stakan, uh, we've had Joachim Schomburger uh, as guests, uh, and we've had Eileen Perez as a guest. Oh. And um, Eileen Perez, I asked her what has been your favorite role uh, or the favorite production you've ever been in, and uh, she said, "Great Scott." was her her favorite experience um and uh was that at houston uh or no, was that it was in dallas dallas okay and uh, she's amazing <laughs> yeah and i forget the the name of her character but it was like an opera singer a character right yeah, her her character is tatiana box and she okay. is from eastern europe yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh she's doing tatiana at the met yes. soon too so yes perfect. i know i'm going to see it i can't wait <laughs> <laughs> no but um I think one of the things that you really enjoyed obviously was the um, ensemble feeling of that show, because I think in a lot of things that she sings, she's like the desperate heroine that doesn't have a lot of friends, you know, but she said that just being in that show was such a, a joy because of the ensemble cast, uh, but also because she got to be funny and uh, nobody ever like casts her in funny things. You know? She's always just she or something a, like that, you know. She had a showstopper number at the top of Act Two called the Starry Spangled Banner. We played that, yes. <laughs> where her character gets to sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl. <laughs> she had so much fun, but I'll never forget the first when we were in rehearsals because it's a real showpiece. I mean, it mm -hmm. is. It does every vocal thing that she can do, right? It explores mm -hmm. everything. And she was amazing in it. But the first rehearsal, when she sang it and she had her backup singers, and she was absolutely incredible. And the rehearsal room just exploded into applause. And she came over to me and she gave me this hug and she was trembling and she was sweating like you can't imagine. And she said, oh my God, that was so scary. <laughs> and you know, we forget that how scary this is for these performers because they make it seem so easy and effortless, which is their job. But, you know, they it's a lot of work what they do. But Eileen was fearless and she's so much fun. And uh, I look forward to working with her again and again in the future. Well, last question for you, um, because I know that you've also throughout this time been doing like teaching mm -hmm. and mentoring and whatnot. Is there either a performer or a composer who you've got your eye on and you cannot wait to see what they're going to do? Oh my gosh, so many composers, because I've even been mentoring some of the younger ones. Um, it's, it's really hard to even single out <laughs> just one. Um, Name them all, we've got time. <laughs> performers, uh, I have to tell you, there is a young male soprano, not countertenor, soprano named Kimon Mura. Yep, he's, he's been a guest on our show. We love him. <laughs> I know. That voice, Yeah. that voice. I mean, I'm actually going to write something for him, but I cannot oh. wait to hear what, what he does because I've never heard a voice like that. And he's I've a star, yeah. A long time, but there is no other sound like that. I've never heard a singer like that. So I'm very excited to see uh, and hear what he is going to do. But, you know, I, I work with so many am amazingly gifted young singers and they keep showing up in droves. And I keep wondering, what are they going to do? <laughs> um, but, you know, that that drive to perfect it and inhabit it and go on the stage and share that vibration, that loving, joyful vibration with an audience. I mean, it's like a drug. And um, when you have that when you have that in your DNA, it's really hard to put that fire out. It just keeps burning and burning. Um, so there are lots of exciting composers and, and singers. I think we're in a really golden age of opera right now, with, especially in this country, with new works constantly being created all of a sudden. 
It's, it's what the business of opera was in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. People didn't want to hear old operas. They wanted to hear what was new. They wanted to hear what Donizetti was writing or Verdi or Mozart or, you know, and now they want to hear this whole fabulous array of composers from all different walks of life and backgrounds and histories. And it's just a really exciting time. I'm thrilled to be on the planet. <laughs> um, my boss uh, at the radio station where I work is fond of saying, that um, you know, a lot of composers have been disenfranchised until recently, mm -hmm. and the ones who are coming through now are able to use um, tonality and able to use um, you know recognizable forms to tell their stories because what's the original content is their story, whereas you know the uh, the grandfathered in line of composers they are the ones that are looking for new sounds because they feel like they have to innovate, but really the innovation is in who's telling the story. Absolutely, you're 100% right. It's in the authentic voice of that composer and what they have to say with that voice. Um, that's why I, I tell young composers all the time, avoid fads, you know, try things. Absolutely, especially when you're young and you're in school, try everything and see what resonates it true as true, but always go back to what is authentically your voice. That's why the end of my email is the Oscar Wilde quote be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. <laughs> Jake Heggie, thank you for being our guest uh, for the second time on, on Opera Box Core. You're very welcome. And this time I have a voice. <laughs> Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Last week, George and I went, to he went head to head with talking about our picks for this year's OBS March Madness bracket. March Madness the, the bracket. Episode March that people, bracket. These are the episodes that people waited on bated breath. They <laughs> people year. have been clamoring into our inbox saying, Who are the other eight? We need to know. You can't keep us waiting like this. This is cruel and unusual. So this week we are going to get the picks from Ashley Hardgrave and Weston Williams to find out who is going to be going up against Handel, Gilbert and Sullivan, Britton, and Ian Bell. From George's selections, <laughs> yes. a lot of a lot Brits. of white guys, a lot of dead one white one Brits. representing each century, one representing each century, century. Uh, and my picks, which were in the 18th century, Rameau, 19th century, Donizetti, 20th century, Richard Strauss, and 21st, Missy Mazzoli. Mm. You all know the rules. There's no Mozart, there's no Verdi, and there's no Puccini. No Puccini. Uh, Certainly no loopholes in those rules, uh, but let's uh, let's let's launch right in and see Weston. Who are you going to pick for your 18th century seed? Well, 18th century opera is is very an, an interesting sort of mix of things for me. I am very much more a, a modernist guy or really early like Baroque kind of person. So I was like, what what really exemplifies what the 19th century was all about in composition of operas at the time? And uh, I think of the transition from the Baroque to the classical, trying to bring the principles of rationality into opera, uh, a dramatic for art form. And I'm like, who does that the best? Who is, who, whose thing was that? And I was like, oh, of course, it's none other than Christoph Willibald Gluck, the great opera reformer, reformer known for uh, operas Alceste, Orfeo and Eurydice. Uh, he helped sort of pull the art form out of the uh, 17th century, or at least tried to. His uh, reforms were arguably not the most successful, but he was all about simplifying, uh, bringing clarity to the drama, bringing opera back to its roots that, roots that kind of got lost in sort of the uh, mix uh, of the, the, the heavy sort of overpowering sort of mix of everything that the Baroque had become. And uh, he's a very important composer, and I would argue probably the most uh, exemplifying of that century uh, as an art form. And I think he's my pick for the 18th century bracket. Okay, okay. Before, before we go off to Ashley, I just want to say, just to simplify what you just said, he took the fun out of opera, basically. <laughs> You're not necessarily wrong, but I still I still support him. And uh, this is the the wisdom of learning to play your judge, Weston. You just gotta. You gotta I hope you, I hope your other uh, I hope your other picks do better. Who is uh, Christoph Willibald Snoozefest von Gluck going to be going up against? Well. I just want to preface all of this that you're going to find a theme with all of my picks, and that theme is... 
We are. Okay, I love a good bit. You knew. You knew this was coming. That, that's um, I that's wanted... the copyright infringement moment right there. So. Yeah, right there. I'm going to bleep it out uh, in post. And just put a big text in that just says Ladies Night by Cool and the Gang. Oh, for I the record, don't, don't you worry. For the record, it has been a weird pipe dream to like incorporate Cool and the Gang into this podcast. It's only taken me years to do this. Check that um, one off the bucket list. Listen, when we're talking about this when we're talking about the NCAA tournament, you've got your teams that you know are going to be shoe-ins to make it past the first few rounds, and then you've got the teams that are just here and happy to be here and here for a good time and here and they've got something to say. I'm your Creighton. I'm your New Mexico State. Ain't nobody expecting these people to go all the way, but let me tell you, we want to make sure that our listeners know that these people exist. And so to go up against our friend Gluck, I am going to introduce <laughs> to some of you Maria Teresa Agnese Pinotini. Uh, if you look at the history books, it looks like no women wrote operas in the 18th century. That is not true, but nobody was producing them, so we don't have a ton to go on for the gals of the 1700s. But Maria was of a certain social standing that she was able to be educated, and as such, she actually got a lot of notoriety and a lot of praise for her output. She's got, I think, uh, her first opera, Ciro in Armenia, her first opera serio, was performed at uh, Teatro Ducale in 1753. She's got six operas, a whole other canon of works, uh, not a whole lot of her stuff remains, but the stuff that does is absolutely stunning, and there's some incredible recordings out here. So again, to go up against Gluck, have you heard of my friend Maria Teresa Agnese Pinotini? <laughs> Justice for so, historical preservation, we gotta say. Absolutely. So moving into the 19th century pick for Ashley and Weston, uh, the 19th century for Ashley brings back last year's champion. <gasps> Ab so Absolutely. You know, in this household, we are Viardo stands. So my pick yes. <laughs> is Pauline Garcia Viardo. Her opera Cendrillon, Cendrillon, excuse me, is making like quite the comeback right now. A lot of people are including her in uh, doctoral dissertations. It's getting productions. Mm -hmm. I think she's a lady of the moment. And on the stunning success of last year, you know, she had to make another tournament appearance. We wish Absolutely nothing stunning. for the best for her. <laughs> <laughs> Who is she going to have to face off with? From Well, uh, uh, I was looking at the rules. I, I, I read into the fine print and I saw no Verity, no Puccini. <laughs> and I'm like, real fine oh, print, yeah. <laughs> oh, darn. I really, I really, what if I found a loophole? And the loophole is uh, some guy you might have heard of named Richard Wagner. <laughs> this is really a... <laughs> fundamental flaw what? in the uh in the, in the construction of this tournament but anyway go on <laughs> well, who is this I, I, wagner fellow <laughs> <laughs> he might Richard, be, not be as well him. known as pauline viardot but I, I do you. think <laughs> i do think that wagner genuinely on uh, on paper has the most significant impact of any 19th century composer in terms of how he explored drama. He started off in a more conventional romantic mold that you would see anywhere else in Europe at the time and then moved on to the more sophisticated music dramas, uh, reaching the, the, the boundaries of tonal harmony, um, writing these huge epic works that are really influential to this day. I think the only point against him is that I think we, I can speak for all of us that in that we don't want to see Wagner win anything. And that's the, the entirely only fair. Point, the, just, the only just point the one. The well, only there are many reasons him. we have that, uh, that opinion of him. Um, but I do think that at least on paper, he is the most important uh, and most significant composer of the 19th century. And I will argue that if someone gives me the opportunity. Uh, well, is your, I hope your 20th century pick is a little less boring. So, who do we who do we got? I got something a little spicy for the 20th century. I tried to think of someone who really, uh, like I did with the 18th century, some someone who really exemplified the sort of transition that that tr uh, century was all about. And uh, I, uh, because of everything happening in Ukraine and Russia at the moment, I've been thinking a lot about you know. Um, resistance and artistic responses to uh, oppression and, and uh, things like that. And I've been gravitating towards the music of Dmitry Shostakovich. Um, and there's a certain relevance now, admittedly, that I he didn't have even, you know, for me like a month ago. 
But the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. The transition from the early sort of like uh, hopeful modernism to the sort of like tragic sort of like uh, uh, bleak sort of sphere of, of sound that Shostakovich transitioned over for his entire life is just something that I think we kind of find relatable about the 20th century. It was a bad century. I think we can all agree in retrospect. And it truly was... More and more people are saying these days. More and more people are saying that. Um, but it really does exemplify the best and worst that humanity has to offer. You can find both in his music. Uh, obviously, he only ever finished two full operas and an operetta. Um, but I would argue that he was kind of a trapped composer and he kept finding ways to write, if not operas, bits and parts and opera-like things for his entire career because he wasn't allowed to do it directly. And that's just something that has really resonated with me recently. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Hollywood needs to do a Shostakovich biopic called The Devil oh, Wears Pravda. I've anyway. got I've got the glasses. I'm ready to play him. Just call me. No, it's gonna be um, Harry Potter. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe. Just because yeah. he can wear the glasses. <laughs> yeah, no, he really looks like Shostakovich. That's why he does. <laughs> Ashley, who is Shostakovich going to be facing off against? Well, the one thing I will push back on before I introduce my amazing pick that will absolutely go toe-to-toe with Shostakovich is you just mentioned that last century was a bad century. In some cases, that's true. But if we go back to our friend Steve Martin and his play Picasso La Pinagie, we remember that the 20th century was the first (laughs) century to be defined by its creative output as opposed to its wars and its changing of countries. So leave that where it is. Anyway, back to the battle. (laughs) The point is... Shostakovich is going to go up against the Scottish-American wonder, the magnificent lady that is Thea Musgrave. She is... Okay, let's talk about all the high school subjects that she crams together in her pieces. Psychology and pragmatism and drama all through the telling of so many (laughs) historical figures. Mary Queen of Scots is going to be my personal favorite on this list. We will talk a whole lot about this later on, but it has one of my favorite monologues from all of opera in that piece. And I think that her output can go toe to toe if for no other reason than representation is cool against Shostakovich. <laughs> now I'm hoping for a Mary Queen of Scots face off between Thea Musgrave and Donizetti <laughs> in the final in the final match. We'll see. Oh, that'd be amazing. We'll see if that's what's in store for our audience. Uh, let's snake draft our way into the 21st century. Ashley, who who are you going to We are going to snake drive our way into the 21st century with the Finnish chart topper, Kaya Saraiho, which is a name I had to practice more than once. It's the double A's. It gets you every time. It, it does. It does. And I'm still pretty sure I didn't get it totally right. Um, so this fantastic human uh is <laughs> you know how they're like the Met's only done two operas by women well guess what she's one of them uh her piece La Morte de Loin came out and sorry was premiered by the Met in 2016 she is somebody who was constantly cranking stuff out and has been produced globally for the last I don't know 20 years or so uh she has this really amazing collaboration with Peter Sellers uh she had something that came out with Aison Provence last summer this is a woman who is bold and beautiful it's not just a soap opera in her compositions but she's continuing to push the envelope even in her sort of later stages of her career she's basically won every award out there for creative composition so i can't wait to tell everybody about all the awesome things this woman is doing a fantastic pick to round out your choices for the bracket weston take us home who's our sweetest 16th well, uh, I have to say it was almost kind of sorry. And then I saw, <laughs> saw what Ashley did uh, and I changed my mind um, because she took it already. Um, but uh, as much as I love Asariaho's work and she's phenomenal, um, I, I went with kind of an interesting pick because this is a composer. I've not actually heard any of the opera, uh, any of the operas he's composed yet, although I will this weekend. Um, and that is, of course, Terence Blanchard who uh, of Fire Shut Up In My Bones fame, and I might add the only black person on this entire list, so take that for what you will. Um, uh, I think that it's really important in the 21st century, I think the thing that's going to define our moment is the, the, the greater inclusion of people of color, of women, of, um, of 
non-traditional, non-traditional quote-unquote sexualities and gender identities and things like this. Um, and I, I think that uh, people are always going to look back at the moment that Terrence Blanchard's uh, Fire Shut Up in My, in My Bones premiered at the Met as a watermark in what the 21st century hopefully will be about. Greater inclusion, greater diversity of voices. Uh, and I'm very excited to hear Champion as well when it comes to next year. And I think he's got a a big enough st- uh, foothold now so that he's really going to be one of the big uh, voices in opera going forward for the next few decades. And I'm really excited to be there and be part of it. So we will uh, get down to the final four next week. We'll have, I don't know what you call it, the semifinals or the... Uh, quarterfinals. <laughs> the Oliver sitting in judgment, I believe is what it's called. <laughs> They're all named. They're all named. But it's just going to be Oliver sitting on a porch with a cocktail saying, you, not you, you, not you. I wonder if Gilbert and Sullivan will be. make it all the way to the end. <laughs> the two-minute drill is coming up now. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. As Ukraine remains under attack, it has fortified its Odessa Opera House with military barricades to protect the landmark against the invading Russian forces. We cherish the theater because it's beautiful, said theater director Nadezhda Babich. It deserves to be treated like a living creature. This is the heart of Odessa. Meanwhile, opera singers gathered in the center of Lviv in western Ukraine to sing the country's national anthem last week, in a demonstration of harmony that underlined the mood of national pride. The brief brief performance took place hours after Russian missiles pounded a military training base in the Lviv region, killing 35 people. Donbass Opera has expressed clear support for Russia. The company has continued to post pictures of ballerinas aligned in the shape of a Z and a V, symbols from Russian propaganda in support of their military, as well as messages from the head of the region's separatist government. An audience member at the Met's production of Ariadne of Naxos created a stir after reportedly yelling, you have no technique, at friend of the show Brenda Ray as she concluded one of the most difficult coloratura arias in the standard canon. Ray's publicist, Verismo Communications, said, This is your semi-annual reminder that artists are people too. Reaching a certain level of fame or prestige does not automatically equip an artist with an indestructibly thick skin. The Met is attempting to identify the rogue audience member who will be banned from future performances. Apparently, he quickly exited the theater after his outburst. But if you can identify him, we will send you an OBS lapel pin. (laughs) An upcoming opera based on the life of Emmett Till has sparked controversy as thousands signed a Change.org petition to cancel the premiere. The opera, based on a play by Claire Koss, tells the story of Till's murder through the lens of a fictional white woman. The Black Opera Alliance said that it empathizes with and supports the Black artists and producers involved in Emmett Till the opera, but... We denounce the telling of this historic story by a white woman and from a white vantage point. In response to this petition, composer Mary D. Watkins, who is black, defended the opera. Quote, the story is told from the viewpoint of one who recognizes that staying silent instead of confronting a vicious system allows the dehumanization of human beings to be a way of life. She comes to the realization that she and others like her have a responsibility to speak out and condemn racism. In an update to last week's drill, Trinity Wall Street Church has dismissed Julian Wachner from his post as music director following accusations of sexual assault. According to the church's rector, we have concluded based on recent information that Julian has conducted himself in a manner that is inconsistent with our expectations of anyone who occupies a leadership position. For this reason, Trinity has decided to end Julian's employment as of today. The Richard Wagner uh, Museum in the basement of Bayreuth flooded last week, damaging 4,000 books, around a third of the manuscripts in the museum's collection. The water leak was apparently caused by a plumbing mishap and not by the River Rhine overflowing its banks to quench the smoldering ruins of Valhalla. Exit stage right. Spanish tenor Bernabe Marti has died at the age of 93. 
Marti had a successful international career from 1958 to 1985, but is perhaps best known for being the husband of legendary soprano Montserrat Caballé. They met during a production of Madame Butterfly, where Marti was filling in for an ailing tenor and performed together on several occasions. And on this day, March 21st, in 1839, it was the birth of Russian composer Modest Mussorgsky. In 1878, Italian baritone Pasquale Amato was born. In 1890, Camille Saint-Saëns' Ascanio had his first premiere in Paris. In 1905, Viennese soprano Hilda Konetsny was born. In 1910, German baritone Gustav Neidlinger, excuse me, bass baritone, was born. In 1925, L'Enfant et les Sortilèges, the children's opera by Maurice Ravel, premiered in Monte Carlo. And in 1935, the late English tenor and Monteverdi specialist Nigel Rogers was born. And that's your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of that performance from the Lviv region where opera singers gather to sing the Ukrainian national anthem. Once again, I feel like a lot of the stories this week are surrounding Ukraine and Russia and what's happening there. Uh, of course, it's no surprise that the Odessa Opera House would be pro-Russia because uh, not Odessa. I'm sorry. Oh, the Donbass Opera House. Uh, because that's the uh, that's that was the part that was occupied by um, by separatists for the past several years, um, uh, which I think uh, I saw some people posting about not necessarily knowing that. So I think we should clarify that that's that's why that's happening. Well, um, here's a here's a breaking story that we didn't report in the drill, but um, as of today, Aida Garofulina has been replaced by Ying Fang for upcoming performances of the Marriage of Figaro. Um, Aida Garofulina. Um, has been singing at the Bolshoi and she has not made a statement against her government. I mean, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, you, I don't know if we are punishing artists uh, for not making statements now, but um, I think maybe just to avoid any kind of protest, you know, any kind of bad PR. Uh, we get Ying Fang, friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely the silver lining yes, to exactly. all of this. Uh, she's amazing. Uh, oh, I want to want to once again uh, remind everyone to uh, send us a voice memo or a hot take on any of our stories, and you can get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, in terms of hot takes, there's plenty this week. Uh, I think the big story I've been seeing has been about this Emmett Till opera. And uh, this is one of those stories that happens, uh, you know, every once in a while where I suddenly become very conscious of my whiteness. And I do want to remind uh, all of our listeners that we are very white and Oliver, while not white, is also not black. So take anything we say with this story with a grain of salt because um, it's kind of a complicated one. Um, hey, but there... you chose Terrence Blanchard for your uh, 21st <laughs> So century, I'm in the clear, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's I, I how that works. Really... <laughs> yeah, I'm oh, not boy. really sure the I have black friends approach really works no, here. It... Um, <laughs> this is also, this is a story that is very quickly evolving. So anything that we speak on now is probably Absolutely. going to be changed in the next, I don't know, 48 to 72 hours. But as far as we can tell, there's a petition that is circulating because there are a lot of things about this production that a, I believe a student at John Jay College took offense to. The Black Opera Alliance has backed up both the performers and also the original person who brought about the petition. Uh, the composer of the opera has pushed back a bit uh, with some... With some claims of like, mm, we don't, you know, some of the things that, that you're upset about here are the reasons why maybe you shouldn't be so much. Uh, I think we're going to see a very different take on this in just a few days. It, it's very hard to tell how, like, what is based on the piece itself and what is based on the social media conception of the piece. Which, right. which as the piece hasn't really been performed, we don't have a way of knowing uh, what the difference is is 
and but between the two of them, there are a lot of p- things that merit discussion and merit listening to the uh the the black community and the black singers and the black opera alliance as they are raising these these points and i'm glad they are i just want it to be an open-minded conversation about like what is actually being said and what is actually being communicated in the opera and not what twitter thinks is being said because we've (laughs) seen uh many times in the last i don't know forever that um twitter doesn't always get things right and when they're when the twitter impression of something uh, is overwhelmingly negative based on like a kind of hastily written playbill piece that just isn't necessarily the full story of what's going on and i'm i'm glad that uh composer mary watkins spoke up a little to give a little bit more context about what they are trying to say in this piece because mm-hmm. it because it really puts it in a different light yeah and i i think that that'll be something that uh, as you said matt will be changing considerably over the next few days especially if the opera uh actually goes on and people actually see it um, but, uh, we'll put a pin in that for now and, uh, um, hopefully maybe we'll get a better perspective from a, a guest down the line. Uh, if we need to, I mean, I mean, I, I, I advocate a lot of the general disruption that black opera Alliance has been sort of, mm-hmm. uh, fomenting of the past few, few years. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I don't know if they're like now not, they're, they're not considering you know a couple of factors you know that those black artists signed up to do that opera they didn't get a chance to do it now their performance is going to be shrouded in controversy the composer is black and is a actually a brilliant composer and has done work that is very social justice minded so why not give her the benefit of the doubt that she chose to collaborate with somebody who you know she resonates with or whose words resonate with her music etc so a lot of assumptions being made and uh, it just, it's disappointing that, um, you know, this type of social justice, this type of, type of activism sometimes points the gun at, you know, at yourself, you know, or sometimes I don't, that's the bad metaphor, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if, if, you, if any of you are in our listeners are mad at Oliver, you can heckle him and uh, we'll send you a <laughs> OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin. And speaking of heckling, this is wild. I can't believe that, first of all, regardless of any questions of technique, uh, the, the, the audacity it takes to stand up and yell, uh, you have no technique after any even attempt at that aria. That is is so mind-boggling. And of course, knowing Brenda Ray, we know the lady has technique. Uh (laughs) Yeah, she went to Juilliard and Music Academy of the West. Girlfriend's fine when it comes to technique. I, I was thinking about this, and okay, point a it wasn't so long ago that operas weren't these homes of decorum there were there was shouting oh, there was the throwing of tomatoes there were definitely yeah, ways clacks. to sort of voice your displeasure with what was happening that said we're also in the midst of an era of enhanced shamelessness uh when it comes to you know sort of being responsive to things that we disagree with or we do not like uh and so in some ways i wonder if our sort of macro culture at large emboldened this man who i am personally deeply furious with uh for voicing (laughs) such a ridiculously uncalled for moment within the stages of this also brenda ray can sing that aria and she's made a human what have you done sir and her exactly her, her castmate who played harlequin's tweet really summed up my experience which is why do you think the 3800 people who came to this performance wanted to hear your opinion about it i mean yeah. this this guy he made his exit uh and he will probably never feel comfortable there again i mean i don't know if he's been identified yet i don't know if people we need he's to like the, the, the men yeah. is on the case <laughs> yeah. um but yeah i mean it really was more about him in that moment, you know, uh, and I hope that he is, feels completely ashamed of what he's done. And even if he, he doesn't, doesn't apologize, that he just feels like crap for, for what he did, you know. Um, I, we, I Sometimes I get these emails from listeners at my other job. And my job is to respond to them and to just be, thank you for your feedback. You know, every now and then I put a little dig in there to say, hey, be nice, you know. Uh, but sometimes you just like respond to people and say, I hear you. Thank you for your feedback. And then they're ashamed because they realize that they they behave badly. They got something off their chest and they didn't think anybody was actually there listening. Uh, and like you said, Ashley, now we're in this 
time where like people think life is Twitter, you know, and they they can say these things. And um, yeah, it's I hope he feels bad. And, uh, yeah, but... I, I call <laughs> I call that uh, I call those things internet cojones. Uh, people forget that there are other folks on the receiving end of these electronic statements, uh, and we are now emboldened to say things that we would never traditionally have said to someone's face before. Yeah. Uh, and I also encounter this a lot in one of my seventeen hundred other jobs, and I get lots of internet cojones, and it. Even though I know it's not about me, sometimes I feel like I take it a little bit personally. Mm -hmm. That was absolutely about her. And she kept going. She finished the piece. So once again, mm -hmm. the hero of the story, as always, is friend of the show, Brenda. Yeah. But I mean, think, <laughs> think about it. This guy probably loves opera if he even knows that that's something that can be hurtful not anymore. to say. Yeah. And he will never feel comfortable in that house again. So he... It's like he did it to himself, you know? That's the theme here. Yeah, Well, absolutely. I'm going to do it to him as soon as I find out who he is. <laughs> I saw Goody Proctor hectoring Brenda Ray with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Ah, it feels good to be George, you know? Uh, without power. any... <laughs> It's like I'm George but taller. I, I can't be stopped. Uh, so, uh, Oliver Camacho, what is your good call or bad call for today? Okay, so everybody knows that I stand handle, but uh, even I acknowledge that listening to uh, an entire handle opera can be a task, you know? Um, this <laughs> Saturday's, as ever. Yeah, this Saturday's broadcast of Rotolinda was enjoyable from start to finish. Congratulations to the Matt. Congratulations to the radio team there. But especially congratulations to the cast. Uh, Elsa Vandenheever, Yesen Davies, Paul Appleby, friend of the show, um, Adam Plaketka, Sasha Cook, Anthony Roth Costanzo. Uh, it was such a solid cast, top to bottom. Highlights being the duet, uh, Io Tabaraccio and Yesen Davies's entrance, Dove Sei. Uh, which stopped the show. I mean, like, this is a hard R to pull off because it's a da capo. It's like nine minutes and like there's no flash in it whatsoever. It's just pure emotion, hard on your sleeve. And in a house as big as the Met, and yes, and Davey's not being like Jamie Barton, you know, um, he sang it the way he sings it and the audience totally bought into it. And I don't think they've ever felt that way about a ha about Handel before. Maybe they... They tell themselves, yeah, I should go see this opera to handle whatever, you know, but they they got it. And that's because, yes, Davies is such a great artist. I also want to say so that the, inter the intermission features were fantastic. They interviewed the Continuo team and explained to the audience what Continuo playing is, which was mm. a brilliant idea. And then they had a singer's roundtable on the Don Carlo and French cast. So we got to hear from Jamie Barton and Eric Owens and Etienne Dupuis, who I think he's a zaddy. <laughs> Well, that's certainly some kind of call. Uh, <laughs> Matt Cummings. I want to throw a good good call over to the opera Morpheus, which is the first Italian opera, which is a giving voice to the transgender community. Uh, it's one of the three finalists of the Opera Factor competition, uh, and it's going to be performed in early April for the very first time. The piece sounds incredibly cool, evoking myths of Orpheus and Eurydice and metamorphoses. It's for baritone, mezzo-soprano, and chamber ensemble, and let's all hope that this is not the last time that this opera is performed. Ashley Hardgrave. In the spirit of giving recommendations in other areas of pop culture, uh, and also, uh, you heard it here first, stay tuned. Uh, I have to congratulate, plug, tell everybody about the magic that was the play Goodnight Oscar, which is currently here, in, uh, sorry, there in Chicago at the Goodman Theater. I'm pretty sure they're prepping it for Broadway based on sort of who's cast and, and the fact that Chicago is often the breeding ground for things that go to Broadway. Uh, this is a telling of a story about Oscar Levant and his appearances in 1958 on the Jack Parr show. It stars Sean Hayes, who we all know from television and many other things uh, and he plays Oscar Levant he's also an accomplished classical pianist so you get a musical component in the middle of this really acerbically witty play the writing from Doug Wright is some of the best playwriting I've seen in the last few years uh, it's a really moving story about behavioral health and the stigmas that surrounded in the 1950s I cannot say enough good things about it as soon as you have the opportunity to be anywhere near a production of Goodnight Oscar go see it 
I have a good call and a bad call because George isn't here and he can't tell me what to do. My <laughs> bad call, of course, is the uh, 4,000 books uh, getting damaged at the Bayreuth, uh, uh, in the Bayreuth basement. Uh, apparently, there was some sort of issue with the plumbing. They're not sure if it was human error or if the pipe just broke, but somehow... A whole bunch of historic manuscripts got wet, and let me tell you, as someone who has a few of his own, every time you see a book that's that old, uh, get even like a hint of moisture nearby, you have a heart attack. It is visceral to me. I hate it so much. But luckily, I have a good call to balance out that terrible call, and that is the fact that on April 1st, PBS's great performances will be showing Fire Shut Up in My Bones, uh, the New York's uh, Metropolitan Opera production. I'm very excited about that. I think this is one, like I said earlier in the show, this is really a benchmark of, of what I hope 20th century Century opera will be will become uh, more diverse voices, more accessibility for these works and for these voices going forward. And I'm just really excited to see it in person on Friday. Oh, look, another good call from me. George, you can't stop me. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at normwaddell.com. If you're watching via the Dallas Opera Network, make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show. On Stitcher and Spotify, you can click follow. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. Send a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is me. And for our guest, Jake Heggie, if we if nothing bad has happened by the time we post this, uh, and for your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you help us search for opera's most wanted man. We're back with an all-new show, show next week when Oliver does what he was born to do, judge us. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more moisture-induced heart attacks. Join us.